if you try and sell an overly complex business relative to the opportunity, in that case, the profit or the value of the business, then you'll struggle. So you've got to weigh that up. Welcome to the 10K Collective podcast for six, seven and eight figure Amazon and e-commerce sellers, part of the amazing FBA podcast family. If you want to scale fast, target a seven figure exit and enjoy the process, then keep listening. Today's sponsor is Eva, the most intelligent Amazon scaling toolkit online. Amazon sellers need exact, quick-to-read profit reports. Many sellers already pay a lot of money for these. Eva has world-class finance analytics with crystal-clear graphs included at no extra cost. Eva serves hundreds of seven-figure sellers, averaging a 51% increase in profits. To get a 15-day free trial, just go to amazingfba.com forward slash Eva. That's amazingfba.com forward slash E-V-A. The growth of e-commerce has been very much a global story over the last 10 to 15 years. And the acceleration of that trend under COVID has also been a very global thing as well. Amazon's obviously been a huge part of that, as everyone knows. But many, if not most, e-commerce businesses end up stuck selling in one or two possible marketplaces. And they could be, depending on their business, missing out on great opportunity, not just for more sales, but of course, more profits. So today we're going to explore whether you should be considering expanding internationally with your business. And if that is the case, how to go about that process to add profits and ultimately make your business more valuable. Love it, man. What a topic. I'm yeah. excited about this one. Literally global in scope. <laughs> so <it's big. laughs> this is big. I'm excited about this one because we have the honor of you know having several communities that we help run mastermind groups for selling, and also you know we work one on one with people who have large, large, large Amazon accounts in the U.S. primarily, but then sometimes do struggle with the question of going global and whether it's the right move or not. And so I think of them as I think about this, and I'm eager for them to hear this this episode and learn about uh, this whole issue of going global, how best to achieve it. You're gonna. I've already seen the outline. You've got tons of uh, tips and ideas here, and really great information that we're going to share in this uh, conversation. So why don't you just frame it for us? Like, how big do you think this opportunity is? What What's your take on the opportunity for U.S. sellers? I guess I'm thinking of U.S. you know Amazon sellers. To go global. I mean, maybe your context is EU sellers to go global, but let's uh, let's talk about the scope and the opportunity here. Well, I mean, it really depends on your individual business, the first thing I would say, but I've got a couple of stories. I mean, one of the clients we have is based in the UK, so it is a bit of an EU sort of European focused. I simply sort of politely bullied him for the first three months of his membership for the Mastermind in about uh, autumn 2017. And they were already doing, I don't know, what, 3 million US, 4 million US a year, and um, persuaded them to go into Germany, which was for them at that particular point, this is not the advice I would give now, but at that particular point, the relationship between the UK and EU was a very easy move. And uh, when he left the mastermind and he moved on to eight figures, a bit bigger than we can serve at the moment, he said to me, well, thanks to you, we've probably made in, in US dollar terms about three quarters of a million in profit alone just from that mm-hmm. move. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was a sweet move. So I'm not saying it's always as easy as that, but yeah. it, it can really just be a whole chunk more mm-hmm. sales and profits that you bolt yeah. onto an existing business. So it's interesting. Yeah, I guess as you explain it that way, the other thing that I do have experience with is sometimes we'll have Amazon sellers or frequently have Amazon sellers come to Kyle and I, and they come to us with the desire to be omni-channel. 
and to move from just Amazon US, um, Amazon.com selling to either selling on Shopify or uh, Walmart or, you know, expanding in other sales channels. And their primary motivation is fear, I guess you could say in a way. I mean, you know, it all boils down to either greed or fear sometimes for this, you know, how that is. But, but I think sometimes they think to themselves, oh, I'm in the US, Amazon, you know, Amazon.com, and I'm just, you know, doing great. But they could shut me down or something could go wrong or th- this could get derailed somehow. You know, you the, I don't know what I don't know, but I know that this is great and I don't want it to stop. So one mitigation of that fear or concern is to go omni-channel. And I guess I'd be interested in your take. Do you see multiple Amazon markets as as an omni-channel strategy? Or would you, I mean, in a way, it's sort of a, a sub-omni-channel approach where you're going to be omni-channel all inside the Amazon ecosystem. But be open to your thoughts on that and whether you see this as a safety and risk mitigation. Well, I definitely have some thoughts on that. Yes. As I remember, I used to have a Russian piano teacher. I used to say, if you've got any advice, and you still go, ho, 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 we have saying about this. And basically, yeah, <laughs> we have I have a lot this. of thoughts, <laughs> as you know me. Well, broadly we speaking, I mean, so let's let's deal with the, the Amazon risk thing specifically, because there are multiple other things that I've got in our outline that we'll cover in terms of risk diversification. But yeah. Yeah. one of the things that you're not going to do, frankly, if you expand to Amazon UK, for example, even if you use a different email address, they're not stupid people. They know you're linked. And if you mess up your US Amazon account, and you break the policies or you have a suspension over certain reasons that could be putting your UK or European Amazon accounts at risk. So the answer to the risk thing, you know, Amazon risk, I suspension risk, you know, I guess you probably will need to have off Amazon channels if that's really your okay. reason for doing it. And a very valid reason it is too. So I guess international expansion via Amazon doesn't particularly in my mind mitigate that risk enough i mean somewhat i do know people who've had for example italian us uh, sorry italian amazon accounts suspended whilst the rest of their accounts were fine including the us so that it does mitigate it to a to a degree so the de-risking not so much so it, then we shift to the reward instead of the risk yeah. opportunity so this is more about reward than it is about risk mitigation yeah well a nuance to that i'm, I'm saying specifically the amazon risk isn't de-risked but there are multiple risks that you need to think about sure. if you only have one currency you sell in then it seems like there's no problem until china and the u.s decide that they're going to completely decouple their currencies and suddenly your supplier cost mm-hmm. relative to the u.s market shoots mm-hmm. up then there's currency risk for example and there are different risks we can evaluate so in that case it is a definitely a hedge against those risks so it does it does help yeah okay so now let's frame this for people who sell in different types of business models so obviously you you're a trainer in the private label field but we also have people who are doing arbitrage and replens (laughs) selling strategy we have people in our community who are wholesale sellers Mm -hmm. who just simply buy you know through wholesale accounts and then resell on amazon is this opportunity to go global, do you think, limited just to private label? Or how would you see those other business no, models? Absolutely not limited. I'm an, I'm not an expert in, in those business models. But I am, for example, a couple of examples. I'm setting up my own retail arbitrage business, partly just so I can see. I believe that it's an opportunity that makes a lot more sense for a big percentage of the, the listeners and people that are following me. And I want to be able to advise them from a point of view of experience. And I'm going to go straight for the US because I have no particular interest in being exposed to more of the UK government's, you know, government policy policies and and particular challenges we have in the UK. So for me, the US looks like a more attractive opportunity, particularly for retail arbitrage, because it's a big country. So that the ability to get the goods you want in your local shops is lower. Therefore, there's more of an opportunity 
opportunity to get it on Amazon mm -hmm. than it would be in the UK, mm -hmm. for example. So it comes down to specifics sometimes. Okay. So that's one example. Another example, if you are UK-based, for example, you might want to contact some US-based wholesalers, not, well, people, not wholesalers, but mm -hmm. we sell at wholesale because they may be delighted to use you as an expansion channel internationally. But equally, if you already have relationships with you know some wholesalers and you can be their international expansion channel and take care of that for them a lot yeah. of them would be very very interested in that conversation it may be an aspiration they've had for a long time but they've never got around to it for the same reasons you yes, do which is you perceive right. it as hassle but if you can focus on the amazon hassle that's a lot more specific than them going international expansion rabbit in the headlights moment we have no idea you know so if you can solve a problem for people you can always make money i think yeah, I love that. I guess the other person that comes to mind is our friend Barrington McIntosh, who sells from the Caribbean into the U.S. market because people in the Caribbean, people who are from the Caribbean who live in the U.S. like the foods of the Caribbean, of course, the re the regional foods. And so he he has a great business just simply buying those types of items, sending them into the Amazon.com, you know, U.S. marketplace. Hmm. And they, the Caribbean, you know, natives love to purchase that stuff when if they live in Minnesota or Seattle or wherever, and it makes it easy and convenient for them. And so I guess that's an international approach and strategy that just is simple arbitrage. And so I think there that that's an interesting angle. And I suppose that would be true of any international, any country that there are uniquenesses there that Absolutely. their own countrymen or, or citizens abroad would appreciate you being the supplier for. Um, yes, I mean, I've angle. heard that people have done quite well in Germany, for example, supplying things like Marmite and things that you can't easily get there. So that that's even like in physical retail stores. So, yeah, there's always opportunities mm -hmm. like that. Those are perhaps more specialist. But mm -hmm. yeah, more generally, if once you take the cap off your, your thinking and just go, right, why don't we consider our next opportunities look a bit more broadly, literally mm -hmm. globally, you may stumble across opportunities that work for your particular business model. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's get the big stuff off the table first. Yeah. What is the biggest mistake you see people make when they start to <laughs> endeavor into such uh, efforts? So two opposite errors, really. And I suppose, you know, we can hopefully synthesize a middle path. The first one is people never get around to it for two reasons. One is they exaggerate the problems in their mind. For example, I don't speak Japanese and I can't mm -hmm. read that. They have three alphabets and that is complicated. But I know a person who deals with that. So actually, it is probably not as complicated as trying to develop a brand new product line, which for me is like sweating blood. I mean, it's really hard work. And I don't know many people who don't find it hard work. Some people like mm -hmm. it but find a hard work and some people like myself find a hard work and aren't that attracted so that's the first thing and the other reason for not getting around to it which is the kind of first error subset of the first error is you're too busy even though you believe in the op opportunity and in that case you know there's only 24 hours in the day and so you have to decide whether you're going to carve some time out get the routine operations off your plate to a degree where you can work on this and actually mm -hmm. that's a more broad strategic mm -hmm. problem isn't it if you're too busy to follow up what looked like genuine properly qualified opportunities you know to change how you approach your your operations and so what does that change thing. that's the Eli yahoo gold rate which is the theory of constraints which is in his book the goal and he asked three questions what to change, what to change to, and how to make the change. Those three questions drive a ton of optimization in businesses. And if mm. you're too busy to take advantage of doubling your total sales or doubling your profit by, by expanding into an international market, just as a, a theoretical you know, future outcome, then it probably means maybe that you're the technician in your business and you haven't figured out how to hire team members who can do the technical components so you can you know, be on the cutting edge of new growth opportunity. 
So team yep. building quickly becomes, I think, a big challenge for scaling e-commerce operations where you've got something working, you've scaled it, you've liberated yourself. Maybe you're financially free now. You've got a real viable <laughs> business, but you need to build a, comp- a, a real team if you're going to scale to uh, you know, greater outcomes. And so I think, yeah, that's, that's, that's part of it that I see, I think, as, as a challenge as well. But then it's so, like, how do you do that? You know, how do you find yeah. resources or virtual team members or whatever that help you do that kind of step? Well, I've got lots of useful resources for listeners there. But I think one thing to your point to sort of synthesize those problems, I, I suppose if you feel like it's complicated and, and sometimes it genuinely is, but if you think how, not who, like how do I solve that? Then of course you're going to get overwhelmed because the answer is going to be, well, you're going to add 20 hours a week to your workload. And if you're working 80 hour weeks, that's not possible. Mm-hmm. But if you think who, not how, there are people out there who solve this stuff for decades who could do it for you. And that's the key for me is you are going to have some management time. And as you said, you're going to have to make sure you you get yourself out of the operations and not be the technician. I absolutely agree with that. But equally, the amount of time you should need to manage it or to sort of push it shouldn't be all of the man hours needed. It should be the management man hours needed because the rest should be outsourced to experts and they're out there and they will do the job for you. It's my experience. Yeah. Uh, love it. And of course, uh, Who Not How is Dan Sullivan's uh, recent book. Yeah, uh, of that, course, yeah, that phrase prompted in their conversations, I think, with who was it? Who was it? The gosh, I, it slips my mind, but I'll think of it in a minute. But the idea is you want to be who'd up and you want to <laughs> focus on your, you know, find your not your not your how. And exactly. so I, I think that's the idea. Yeah, I love that. I think that's really vi- valuable advice. Yeah. So the second big area of, of error is the opposite, really, which is people go, oh, well, you know, especially when they're based in the UK and they still people still have that mentality, even though Brexit has changed absolutely everything. So if you're a UK based seller, don't assume that things are just the same in 2021 as they were last year, because they are violently different, I can tell you. So but, you know, the, the natural thing is, oh, I could sell in Germany. Well, why don't I sell in France and Spain and Italy? Well, you suddenly added a bunch of languages, customer support, different um, cultures, different types of regulations. But you might sell two units a week of something in Spain. And, and then you've added a ton of complexity without mm-hmm. the commensurate opportunity side. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, that's one of the things that I see people doing quite often as well. That's kind of an error of of commission, not omission. So it's a more positive, more entrepreneurial error to make is to overexpand. But mm-hmm. nevertheless, that's not a great thing to do either. So yeah. I just advocate just yeah. doing two things, which is don't assume it's too hard, but don't assume that you should just do everything either. Just assume yeah. that you can do it, evaluate the opportunities, and then pick your fights and go for the, the big mm-hmm. wins. And that's the way forward, in my opinion. Okay, love it. I love it. Okay, so if somebody's thinking, hmm, should I do this? Mm, maybe... Why don't you give us your best rundown of the reasons why international expansion is a good is a good idea for people to look into? Sure. Well, so one very, very simple thing is that whenever people are private labeling, and this doesn't apply quite in the same way to resellers, but it might apply to those who are sourcing wholesale, is that if you have to get a thousand units done as a minimum run or 2000, whatever it is of a custom product, particularly even private label products, quite often what you'll say is, okay, so in China, I need to get a thousand units done. But if I go to the US and look at my sales figures, I can only shift realistically you know, 500 every three months. And therefore, you're going to have a lot of stock hanging around tying your capital up. One solution would be to, and this is a very common thing, that you look at what you could shift in Canada as well, and then in Germany and UK, for example, and it all adds up to a sort of an additional 
maybe double the number of units. So suddenly you can move your, you can make an order and shift that stock into cash within three months. And therefore, you know, you're more efficient, you're turning your cash over quicker. So you're basically using the same amount of cash in stock, all things being equal, this is a simplistic way of putting it and sending it around the globe and you're turning it back to cash more quickly. So you should, if you get it right, not really greatly increase your working capital requirements, but you can almost double your sales, which is a beautiful thing. And this is a very powerful reason to do it. I think that's probably my number one reason to do it. The MOQ versus unit sales thing. Yeah. Anything that increases cash flow. Yeah. More revenue and more profit. I mean, it's it's quite simple. Now they don't automatically (laughs) translate, right? So you could be a UK based seller. You look at the US, you see stars in your eyes and you think, wow, somebody's doing a million dollars a month in this market. Well, okay. But if it's hyper competitive, you won't necessarily make profit. So Mm -hmm. you need to nuance that, but that's certainly an opportunity. Diversifying global risks. We talked about uh, risk diversification. To some degree, you can mitigate Amazon suspension risk for an individual country account. So that is kind of half mitigated. But Mm -hmm. currency exchange risk is one thing. If uh, the Chinese and US dollar relationship changes violently, uh, then that could be really hit you. Whereas if you're selling to Europe and that hasn't changed, then you'll have the same profits you had before. Mm-hmm. The second thing is diversifying geopolitical risk, which is a very real thing. China and the US are kind of on collision course for who's who's mm-hmm. the top dog in the world. And that means, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong, it is what it is, that there are big old tariffs now, of course, importing from China to US, whereas you won't have any change really between China and the EU for the last decade in terms of the relationship. The other well, op- obvious one is Brexit. You know, if you were selling into Germany last year from the UK, no problem, making lots of money. This year, it's an absolute nightmare. Whereas if you're selling to the US, that won't have changed. Yeah. So that's another thing you mitigate against. And then other oh, risks as well, which yeah. are quite random. So for example, during the COVID time, Kevin Sanderson, my friend who sells everywhere in the world, who I know you've met as well and mm-hmm. spoken with, he was selling primarily in the US, but he was also selling in Europe, which was maybe a third of his sales. And at one point, the US kind of shut down most of the the Amazon warehouses that he was fulfilling from. And Europe just kind of saved his bacon because that kept ticking at that point. So sometimes you don't even know what what you're going to protect against, mm-hmm. but having diversification geographically can really help there. I'll add something to your list as I'm, as I'm listening to that. The other incredible opportunity as a reason to expand is because frequently for each of us in our categories, we're head to head against other competitors. And the question is, where are you and where are they? And it is a little bit of a chess game or checkers. You, you got spots on the board that you are or aren't that are strong or weak. And they have spots on the board where they're strong and where you're weak. And you're constantly thinking through where are they? Where am I? Are they first? Am I first? Or, you know, ideally. And if you have an opportunity to go into a space that is not occupied by a competitor, these frequently become winner take most opportunities. If you install yourself as the number one option in any product niche in the, you know, bestseller ranks on these marketplaces or platforms, it becomes increasingly difficult to uninstall you. And so, you know, that, and that's, that's the name of the game in many of these marketplaces is start when they're small, start when no one cares, start when no one understands who they are, what they do. And as they scale, you scale, and you've installed yourself in a, a prime spot over time. It's almost like setting up shop in a little town that's a nowhere town <laughs> that the major railroad or freeway gets installed by. And then over time, as the traffic grows and grows and grows, you do more and more well and your competitor 
only wishes they would have known about that opportunity <laughs> of the year before you did. Yeah, and absolutely. it is a little bit of a, a little bit of a land grab. Sometimes it feels like I think so. Absolutely, yeah. I think the main thing is it's, it's it, nobody has a twenty twenty vision on the future, but you need to look at the sort of drivers of it. I mean, population mm-hmm. size is one, isn't it? But you know, sometimes there are kind of underloved markets. I mean, I think for example, if I were US based, then Canada would be something I would be considering a bit stronger than most. I think my understanding is that sort of eighty percent of Canadians live within 100 miles of the u.s border i mean so it's mm-hmm. it's not mm-hmm. it's a huge country but most of it isn't going to be you know yeah. where you're trying to fulfill to so yeah. you know that there, there are some obviously underloved things another one for me is japan i mean yes mm-hmm. there are linguistic problems which are very solvable but actually if you're if you're making stuff in china and selling it over to the uk or the us which nobody thinks twice about doing normally it's pretty tricky yeah. right now yeah. the shipping time on a boat from most chinese east coast to japan is two weeks. It's so quick. And that takes out a lot of the the horrendous nail biting of is my shipment going to take three or possibly four months now? Mm-hmm. Uh, and people don't consider it because there's a bit of a, a cultural barrier. And I get that. But compared to the horrendousness of shipping stuff from China to US. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I just think yeah. that's underloved. Yeah. And that's an opportunity, for example. So if people have heard the opportunity exists and they aren't doing it right now they're they're either not doing it because they're really new and they haven't gotten to that valuable thing because there are other more valuable things that they're doing they're just you know maybe scaling in the in their own country first but and so it's just on their list but not done yet but the other reason people might not have done it is because to your previous point they've over exaggerated the concerns or complexities or problems in their mind maybe they've made a, a monster out of it but there are realities that are of, of complexity and problem, you know, problematic, you know, issues to solve if you're going to go uh, international. So, what what do you see as those real big big challenges and the downsides associated with expanding internationally? Yeah, I would say the first thing is additional complexity. It's not just your management time, but if you're trying to sell the business on, if you're thinking big big picture longer term if you're trying to sell it on to an aggregator or anyone else it's going to be their management time and if they're intelligent and some people don't think this through and will just buy anything but if they're <laughs> the the longer people get the reality of integrating amazon businesses with multiple countries involved multiple marketplaces the more they're going to be aware of the fact that they should think about this so over time if you try and sell an overly complex business relative to the opportunity, in their case, the profit or the value of the business, then you'll struggle. So you've got to weigh that up. There will be more money to spend on tax compliance, which is not the same as the tax itself. Compliance, meaning hiring tax experts, registering with different companies, putting in reports, you know, VAT, sales tax, whatever it is. Um you might potentially need to spend more money and focus as well, mental focus on other forms of compliance. You know, for example, if you're selling stuff uh, that is FDA approved, what is the European Union equivalent and things like that as well. Uh, you're going to need to set up new relationships in different countries or, or sort of entities. I suppose you sometimes can treat the EU as a whole, sometimes not. Tax can get complicated, of course. You've got stock management complications because you need to know where your stock for product line X is. You might have you know, a thousand units being made in a factory in China, 500 on the water towards the US, 200 in the USFC, etc. right? So you've got multiple places where stock can end up. So you've got to be on top of that. 
and capital allocation as well. If you're really expanding aggressively internationally, you may not be expanding in the sense of launching new product lines. Uh, you might be taking existing product lines and allocating the capital to stock and international expansion costs. So it is really quite a big decision, which is why yeah. I'm trying to flag this up as a nuanced discussion rather than just, yes, yeah. it's amazing or no, it's terrible. No, it's great. And, and I think it, you're wise to, to set it up this way as, you know, consider the realities of the challenges, but also the opportunity. And I think just, I guess, timing-wise, you know, as we record this, it's the end of October, early November. I think timing-wise, I would just encourage people to think, okay, this year is obviously just all about Black Friday, Cyber Monday, end-of-year sales, but could I set this up for, you know, next year? Could this be my, could this be my big, big thing for next year that really takes my business to the next level? I think that, so timing-wise, in terms of the, the calendar right now, I think this makes a lot of sense, too, for people who are listening to this in the moment, you know? So, okay, so we've got the pros, we've got the cons. What are the decision-making steps that you would recommend people kind of put together to really make this decision as to whether they should do this or not? Well, following your lead, Jason, I've got a 10-step process. So uh, hopefully something people can hang on to. So uh, the first step is really to tie it to your bigger goals. I mean, two things, really. I mean, the biggest goal is probably the, the lifetime of the business insofar as you own it. It doesn't mean the lifetime of your business if you sell it on somebody else and it becomes a global brand for 20 years. But what's your exit plan? What is the simplest path to a valuable exit? As I said before, you've got to think about adding value versus adding complexity. Complexity broadly is less attractive because it means management time and risk for whoever takes the business on. And by the way, it's true for you while you own it in the meantime, but also, you know, value. I mean, so you've just got to weigh that up. As I said before, if you start adding all the European marketplaces, for example, and all the complexity that comes with that, and, and, and you have marginal additions from three of them, that does not make sense. So you've got to think about, you know, if you're planning to sell your business, how attractive is this going to make your business more or less attractive? Mm -hmm. And will it add to the value? Goals, and then yeah. linked Love to that. that is your medium term goals. What's the simplest path to profit? Sometimes it could be just produce more uh, product lines for the same marketplace. If you're really good at product development, I mean, personally, I feel it's like pulling teeth. Some people find that easier and find international expansion more stressful. So that's a bit of a nuance. But either which way, you've got to tie it to your big goals. Otherwise, you're just adding stuff randomly. And it's very easy to do. Amazon will encourage you every five seconds to add more marketplaces. But you need to be very mindful yeah. about whether it makes strategic sense for you and your yeah. business. Okay. What's the second step? Second step, consider alternatives. Really, you're looking at allocation of time and money and effort to new product lines versus new sales channels. Those are broadly speaking how you're going to increase revenue. I mean, okay, you should be caveat. We've talked before about fine tuning your conversion rates and everything else to maximize profit from existing revenue. So I'm not suggesting you skip that, but assuming you've done that dangerous assumption, but I have to make it. It's basically new product lines versus new sales channels. So you've got product A, it's selling in the USA, it's selling like hotcakes. Okay, what are you going to do next with the limited capital and money you've got available? What's the next step? Is it going to be to go and get related products made or are you going to go into the you know UK with it and maybe mm -hmm. Germany as well? Mm -hmm. Obviously, you can have a strategic plan to do both, mm -hmm. but I would strongly advise against doing both at the same time because normally you're bitten off more than you can chew in my yeah. experience with that one. <laughs> Yeah, this is interesting because I think this is where it really becomes an omni-channel conversation. You know, we've had this conversation many, many times with the clients that we work with, which is you've got something nailed right now. You're on lockdown with, you know, your current Amazon US selling process, or you've got, you know, you've got that set up and you've got Shopify set up. And the question is, what's next? And the international Amazon frequently turns into just an alternate channel that they evaluate against Walmart or 
you know, other, you know, omni-channel selling opportunities. And so I think that's an interesting thing to look at because you probably, I don't know what your opinion is, but I would think you'd want to take these channel exercises sequentially one at a time, do one right, get it going, refine it. And then when you've got the mental, emotional, financial team bandwidth to take on a new channel, you just go, you know, you go into the next one, get it sorted and then keep going from there and become an omni-channel seller over time in that way, rather than dabbling in three or four channels at the same time and have a giant bowl of spaghetti business <laughs> mess, the problem, right? Is that... I, I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah. I mean, I suppose the bowl of spaghetti mess is, is a very visceral way of putting what I was trying to say, the, the classic mistake I see. People kind of just chuck everything on Amazon. They go omni-channel just because you can. Like if you're based in North America, it's it's not a casual stuff to send inventory to chuck to uh, Canada because it's so huge or to Mexico because it's a very different type of market. But uh, in Europe, it's very tempting to just go, oh, let's just throw everything in there. And you're right, that that's messy and I absolutely 100% back you up on that. Yeah. One channel at a time, get it right, refine it. And by the way, try it out first and you may mm. discover that it's not for you. I, I would say allow for that. And the assumption we always make as, as entrepreneurs is, oh, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this as opposed to, let's be humble. I'm going to try this. If it works, I'm going to double down on it. But if mm -hmm. it doesn't work, I'm going to do something else. So allowing for that as well yeah. is part of reality, isn't it? I think. Yeah, totally right. And I guess the international Amazon expansion is a known quantity in terms of the backend systems and all that. I mean, relatively yeah. speaking, if you're selling on one Amazon platform, you, you kind of conceptualize how you could move laterally to other countries. Yes. Uh, whereas if you compare it to selling on eBay or Walmart and you've never done that before, it's a whole different animal. Um, so yeah, I, I think that makes a ton of sense. So what's the, what's the next step? What's the third step? So the third step, really, having decided whether it makes sense for your strategic plans and, and looking at basically, you know, the the, the, the trade-offs, as you said, are you going to do Walmart.com in the US versus, you know, Amazon Europe or something, is really, okay, evaluate the size of the opportunity. So that my hint is, is very simple, um, but important, which is start with the biggest markets first. So US is, you know, if you're UK-based, always this sort of shining city on the hill. I'm not quite sure that a lot of the time <laughs> that it's really the opportunity. It looks that's like because... A, that's the, such a nice comment. Yeah, about I don't the know US where that right comes now. from. A, we're a shining city on a hill. On the hill. Well, it looks so British like person. That's so great. <laughs> big, big, big sales numbers and, you know, <laughs> the raving consumers, you know, they yeah. buy everything. But yeah. you've got to think about the fact that if you go into a really big market, it's going to have a very big working capital requirement. That's the first thing. And the second thing in the US, compared to most other marketplaces in the world on Amazon, but it's true off Amazon, I guess, to, to a large degree, is just so much bigger that the competition is really fierce. So you need to know what it is you're doing. Having said that, sometimes you can niche right down in the US and make a real business out of something that would be just too small a niche in, in any other marketplace. Mm -hmm. So yeah. the US is a bit of a special case because of its size. But I would say if you're UK or US-based, Germ UK, if you're US-based, is an obvious one. And Japan, those are all, you know, Germany is the second big mar biggest Amazon marketplace by some margin. And then UK and Japan always seem to be pretty similar sizes. Okay. So they're obvious opportunities. So and, your uh, rank order would be US, Germany, UK, Japan. So the, yeah. those are the top four. If I, yeah, kind of in terms of size. I mean, if I had to really pick three to really focus on, if you're US-based and you're not selling UK yet, it's the obvious place to look. But they're really the underloved, uh, because of the perceived barriers to entry, you know, the, where to your point of trying to dominate before everyone else has got in there, Germany and Japan is still, Germany has got quite a few American sellers, but not as many percentage wise as the UK for sure. And Japan is just, 
underloved by US sellers. And I understand why, because it's a kind of a bit of a black box. You can't use the usual research tools. Yeah. For me, that's a great thing. Yeah. I love that because you haven't got the competition. And I think the competition is a bigger problem to you than some logistical challenge. I mean, the competition is always going to be eating at your margins. Whereas once you've jumped over a barrier, you're the other side of it. So yeah. for me, I mean, if I had to pick one single underloved opportunity, it's Japan, really. You know, it's um, interesting you say that, uh, Kyle... Hamer, my business partner for our consulting work, says that frequently to people. He he sells with his brands in Japan, and he walks people through that for the same reason, which is you know you kind of go where people aren't, your where your competitors aren't, and yeah. So it's interesting. He he feels the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that. But yeah, it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, depends what you think the problem is. An operational problem is something you can solve, whereas competition is out of your control, isn't it? And likely to increase if the competition finds something easy now it's going to get worse over the next 12 months a couple of sort of bonuses if you're based in the usa i would definitely consider canada i'm not based in the us so i've not really you know done that it's slightly harder if you're uk based but it you know there's a bunch of you know well-heeled consumers that probably have quite similar habits to us citizens within a stone's throw of the us border if you're already selling the eu particularly if you're selling in germany i would definitely add on france italy spain Mm -hmm. to that I wouldn't just randomly add them on there if you're not already selling in Germany yeah. because to the points we made earlier, people get excited about Australia, Dubai, Singapore, UAE, whatever. I've, I've never really come across anyone who's done anything there that's excited them or me, really. So I, I wouldn't get too distracted by those at this stage in the game. Ladles and Jelly Spoons, thank you so much for listening to another episode of The E-Commerce Leader. Today, we've talked really quite globally about the Amazon global selling thing, pros and cons of international Amazon marketplace expansion. There are many big opportunities out there for a lot of people. Equally, there are quite a few uh, problems to overcome in order to do it. So you've just got to think it through. Hopefully today was a useful pros and cons kind of lists. Another approach to the same problem is what we'll take in our next episode, which is when we've got a 10 step process to go through really to evaluate how to decide whether to sell a particular marketplace or not and in the Amazon sort of ecosphere. And it's important to think it through. I think sometimes people fall into one of the two traps I mentioned, which is that they freeze uh, in horror because it looks too complicated and they miss evaluating the size of the opportunity, which for their personal business might be really huge over the next few years. And equally then, sometimes people just start without thinking it through and then it ends up with a bit of a spaghetti mess, as, as Jason would put it. So... There is a middle path. I believe that we have that path. So do stay tuned uh, for our next episode on that. We are also producing quite a bit of new content now with our call-in app. So call-in is only available on iPhones at the moment. It's call-in, C-A-L-L-I-N for November. And if you want to find the e-commerce leader call-in show, just go into the app, type in the e-commerce leader, and then hit search. And under the shows segment, you should be able to find that. So just get in there and uh, follow and subscribe and you'll be able to hear the debates live. We are talking with Chris Green, Kyle Hamer, which is who's a very, very good Amazon seller and is Jason's business partner in their consulting business. And of course, Jason Miles and myself, Michael Vesey. So it's quite a fun lineup, a bit more interactive, a bit shorter and snappier style than Jason and I tend to deep dive a bit more. So if you find what we're doing here helpful, then check that out. You can also find it on the podcast as well. But the Call-In Show app is a fun place where we can eventually, when things expand a bit, we're going to be a bit more interactive as well. So do check us out there at the Call-In app, C-A-L-L-I-N, 
or keep following us on podcasts or indeed YouTube or Facebook, wherever it is that you prefer to follow your content. And thank you so much for your attention. We will aim to make it absolutely worth your while and help you to become the best e-commerce leader you can be. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the 10K Collective podcast for six and seven figure Amazon sellers. I really hope you found the show helpful to you. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave us a quick star rating. It will take you all of 30 seconds to do it, but it does mean we can be found by and help many more e-commerce business builders. I wish you fast and profitable scaling, and I hope you enjoy the process of building your seven-figure Amazon business. Thanks very much for listening.